Well, Rich is going to come and speak to us now about Easter and the resurrection. Let's welcome Rich. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, if you are visiting, I've not met you yet. My name is Rich. I'm one of the leaders of the church. Uh, and I do want to talk just for a few minutes uh, about Easter. Um, one Easter mystery has already kind of hit me this morning. I was, um, I do like getting Easter eggs. I don't think it's, I don't think it's something you grow out of, do you? But sometimes the motif of them, you think, what, what really is this all about? I was delighted, don't get me wrong, I was delighted to get an Easter egg. But the motif of the Easter egg seemed to be that it was full of chocolate frog's heads. I'm still struggling to work out how that really fits, but I'm very grateful, obviously. (laughs) But why? I don't understand. Um, I'm going to try and do a slightly easier question today than why my Easter egg was full of chocolate frog heads. I'm going to ask the question, Easter, what, what, what happened? What happened at Easter? I'm going to do it by reading uh, a passage from John's Gospel. We're going to go from John chapter 19, verse 41, all the way through to about halfway through chapter 20. And just before I read it, I want to make sure this question, Easter, what happens? I want us to understand why this is so important. It's a brilliant, brilliant question. I think it's the most important question there is in the world. You, you might be here because you're investigating, as Chris was saying, you want to find out what happened. Christians tell me one thing, other people tell me another. What happened? I need answers. I need to know. You may be here because you're hoping I'm going to give you some answers. You may be here because you think, I think I know what happened. But what I want us to do is explore, just for a few minutes, this idea of what actually really happened at Easter back there. Because the whole Christian faith stands or falls on the answer to what really happens at Easter. And actually, depending on what really happened on that first Easter Sunday, it was either the most important and significant event in the history of mankind ever, or it's a complete non-event, unworthy of any time, interest, or attention, and we can just forget about it. So the stakes are quite high, aren't they? It's not like, well, I wonder what happened. Either it means everything or it means nothing. So I think it's worth, wherever we're at and whatever you may believe already, I think it's worth seriously investigating and asking some questions about what really happened. I'm going to do it reading from John's Gospel. John's Gospel was written by John, one of Jesus' original 12 uh, disciples, his 12 followers. And so John had access uh, to to lots of the the, the kind of core a group and the core events going on in Jesus' life. And we're going to see that this particular account that John narrates uh, was supplied to him by somebody else. And we're going to look at who that is when we read the passage as well. I'd also just like to flag up that John's gospel that I'm reading from, just out of interest, this is the, the earliest New Testament manuscript, the earliest kind of handwritten version of any of the New Testament books we have comes from John's gospel. It's a, it's, a, it's a piece of John chapter 18, just a chapter before where we're starting, that archaeologists have found and dated somewhere between 100 and 130 AD, probably around about 70 to 100 years after it was originally written. In terms of ancient manuscripts, that's frighteningly small. 
So we can kind of in one sense already put aside the idea that, oh, isn't this just some sort of myth that hundreds and hundreds of years later people picked up the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. No, no, what we've got is an eyewitness account given to somebody else who was intimately involved in the events and was written down and was accurately passed on to people such that what we read today is really, really, really strong evidence. So I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to ask a few questions of it. We'll start at verse uh, 30, 41 of chapter 19. At that place, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. In other words, it's before the Jewish Sabbath, and the Jewish rules were that no one could work on the Sabbath. So they had to kind of quickly deal with the body then and there. First verse of chapter 20, early on the first day of the week, so we're now fast-forwarded from Friday when they put the body in the tomb to Sunday. Early on the first day of the week, when they're allowed to kind of go and work again. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, and she's the person that we're going to kind of follow through this, this event. She was one of Jesus's kind of uh, inner circle, if you like. There was a couple of dozen people, as far as we can tell, that traveled closely with Jesus and worked closely with him. There were 12 disciples plus some wider people. Mary was one of that group. She was one of the few people who actually was, was strong enough, if you like, to, to hang around. And she stood and, with a couple of others and watched Jesus's crucifixion Whereas many of his disciples fled, Mary was there watching him die with her own eyes. She saw him executed. And here she's going on the first day of the week, the first day any good Jew at that time was able to kind of travel any distance and undertake any work to finish the hasty preparations that they'd made a few days beforehand for the burial. Mary's eyewitness testimony is so important. We find it in all four of the gospel accounts of Jesus and his resurrection. She's a really key, key voice in all of this. Uh, so Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone, which was used to seal the tomb, it was probably a cave with a stone across it, had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, the strips they would have wrapped the body in. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, and many people say that would be John himself who wrote these accounts. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, although in brackets they still didn't understand from Scripture, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The disciples uh, then went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She stayed behind. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And we're going to ask why perhaps she might have thought that in a moment. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried away, tell me where they've put him and I will get him. Tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended 
to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. In some ways, that account is quite hard for some of us to swallow, isn't it? We've got people rising from the dead. We've got angels. We've got all sorts of supernatural things going on. The point I want us to see as we examine and kind of follow Mary's journey is that it was pretty difficult for Mary to swallow that as well. It was also a really difficult journey for Mary to go on. The question we're going to ask first is, where is he? Where, where is he? What really happened to Jesus? This is Mary's question, isn't it? She's, it's like she's almost in shock when she arrives at the tomb and finds the body's gone. The only question in her mind is, where is he? Where, where, someone's taken him. Where, where, where has he gone? I mean, she's not in a good place. Remember, she's not looking for a miracle here. She's not kind of woken up Easter Sunday and thought, here's the big day. This is going to be exciting. No, she heads to the tomb to finish off the burial preparations. And the stone's gone and the body's gone. Think of the psychological impact of that. Imagine if you've buried someone close to you, and maybe a couple of days later you go back in our culture to the graveside to lay some flowers, and someone's dug it up, and the coffin is open at the bottom, that's shocking, isn't it? That's quite upsetting. She is disturbed. But notice the default kind of assumption she makes is there's a natural explanation for this. She talks about someone's taken him. Where's they put him? Have you taken him? Where have you put him? She's thinking, despite the horror of seeing the desecrated grave of her close friend and someone she looked up to spiritually, her her question is, where, where, where have they put him? Where have, where have they taken him to? She automatically assumes that there's a natural explanation for this. Even when she meets Jesus himself, and maybe, I don't know, initially through a mixture of tears, and simply just, it can't be him, she's seeing this figure. It, it, who else is going to be sneaking around a garden early in the morning? It must be the gardener. Do you, do you know where, where he is? Where have you put him? And it's only as he kind of turns to her and she sees him and hears him, Oh, oh, it's Jesus. See, Mary doesn't kind of leap immediately to the end of the story that if we've been Christians a while or if we know our Bibles, we know it's coming. We're kind of waiting any minute now. It's the big reveal. He's in the gardener outfit. He's wearing dungarees. He's got a spade any minute, any minute. Ta-da! She's not waiting for that. She's automatically assumed the natural processes that you and I take for granted have happened. He's, he's dead. He's gone. Someone's taken him. Who's this joker? Where, where have you put him? It's like her mind can't process the impossible thought that Jesus is alive and he's risen. Even when looking at him, she can't process it. You can imagine having to double take. She's look, looking again. and again. It's him. It's Jesus. See, Mary, she's on this gradual journey to faith. She's on a gradual journey to belief, isn't she? She doesn't leap to conclusions. She doesn't just say, oh, well, the the, the grave is empty. He must have risen from the dead. Simple as that. Reluctantly, cautiously, she goes down this route. 
And the evidence gradually builds up. The evidence of her eyes, what she sees, gradually builds up till she feels, I, I don't think I can escape the conclusion. He's risen from the dead. And she goes and tells the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Christians believe that she was right. Christians believe Jesus was risen from the dead. Christians believe that God himself intervened and rose Jesus back from death. We'll see why in a few minutes' time. But that's the Christian message of Easter. It's not just kind of hope and new beginnings and eggs and, and, and bunnies and frogs' heads in chocolate eggs and things like that. It's that Jesus is alive. And Mary has struggled kind of reluctantly, skeptically, against the evidence. She's kind of been forced down this line to accept, I think he actually is alive. She's not done what people assume Christians do, blindly accepted what she wanted to be true, regardless of any evidence. Oh, it must be the case. No, she's been led down this route. She's, she's, She's gradually, cautiously allowed the evidence to shape her view of the world. What she's not done is twisted and skewed the evidence to fit her preconceived view of the world. And the challenge I'm going to bring to some of us this morning is I think we need to do something similar. I think we need to, however gradually and cautiously, we need to allow the evidence to perhaps change our view of the world and our view of what happened to Jesus. Let's look at the other disciples, for example. They, they were even slower than Mary to accept this. Mary, it's like she had processed these things and thought, gradually moving to faith. I think this is the case. I think he's alive. The other disciples, Jesus' other disciples, found it harder. They were slower. Don't be put off in verse 8 when it says, oh, they went in and saw they believed. I think they believed the body's gone. No, she's right. The body's not here. I don't think there was any great leap of faith in Jesus risen from the dead. It says in the very next verse, they didn't, they didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I don't think we've got these disciples again doing what people assume Christians doing. They're rushing in, they're hot and sweaty from the run to the tomb. For some reason, John's at great pains to point out that he got there first. It's like just a little bit quicker still. Yeah, I didn't go in first, but I was there first. Make, that, make sure that goes down in the account. And then they look in, they, and we, they look in one of them goes in. The body's not here, oh. I believe the body's not here. But what do we make of it? We're not sure. They go back. In in another account in Luke's gospel, we're told that when Mary tells them, I've seen the Lord, he's risen from the dead. It says, their words words seem to them like nonsense. These are not people. They've been with Jesus three years. They're not super primed to believe the impossible. They're not waiting for some miraculous event. They're not thinking, right, good Friday, set the watch ticking until Easter Sunday. Here we go. Tick, 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 tick. And there's the supernatural. The women come to him and say, we've seen Jesus risen. No, nonsense. That, that, that doesn't happen. Those things are impossible. That's not the way the world works. He's dead. He's buried. The Romans crucified him. If anyone knows how to kill people, it's the Romans. And yet gradually, as they allowed the evidence to shape their view of the world, the disciples also went on a gradual journey to faith. And we find encounters with the risen Jesus, even later in John's gospel. And in other gospel accounts, we find these encounters. So for the disciples, it was a way of, this is nonsense what these women have said. Risen from the dead, we always thought that was a metaphor. You find Jesus in the gospel accounts sometimes talking about, hey, listen, I'm going to have to die in three days rise from the dead. And it's like they go, now that is a deep metaphor. What is that 
What's that a parable of? What's he talking about? And they're debating it amongst themselves. And even after he dies and the women start saying he's risen from the dead, they're saying, oh, there's there's an analogy there somewhere, isn't there? How can we make this work? Why? Because they're thick? I don't think they were any thicker than you or I. But because we struggle to accept these kind of miraculous supernatural things, we, we automatically default to a natural explanation that we can cope with, that works with the world around us. But as they tried to get to grips with the empty tomb, the missing body, it's not just someone has taken the body, well, let's find them. Let's follow the footsteps. Oh, big muddy footsteps in the garden. Oh, they've put him over here in a ditch behind the bush. We found him. The tomb was empty. The body was gone. And then over and over again, people start meeting Jesus risen from the dead. Mary meeting Jesus risen from the dead in the garden, in dungarees with a spade. It was just the first of many. There were lots of events, and we find the disciples themselves encountering this risen Jesus physically. There was a physicality and a tangibleness to them. It's not like saying, do you know, out the corner of my eye, I think I glimpsed someone who was a bit like Jesus. Shorter maybe, but a bit like Jesus. These are encounters where many people are present, and Jesus shows up, and they speak. And you can imagine them hugging each other. Shaking hands if they were British. There's, there's physicality. They're cooking. They're eating. I've cooked you some fish. Do you want to eat some breakfast? I'm starving. I haven't eaten in days. And they sit and talk and chat and discuss things. And Jesus, what happened here? What happened here? And probably half the time they're thinking, what? He, he's dead. Gradually, reluctantly, skeptically perhaps, they had to allow the evidence to change their view of the world, to accept the fact that Jesus actually was risen from the dead. These were not fleeting glimpses. They were so extraordinary that even Jesus' own mother, who had also been there with Mary, watching him die, and Jesus' own brothers, who'd always found him a bit of a wind-up merchant, what's all this stuff about being someone special, were convinced, no, 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 no. Suddenly we understand he's risen from the dead and he's come from God to rescue us. What does it take to change a mother and a brother's opinions of their dead son or brother? And I think we are also like this, aren't we? We naturally look to natural explanations. Imagine you're, imagine you're in going down the street, whether it's Churchill Square or London, and you, know, you see one of those jokers doing the thing where they're kind of cross-legged, levitating, but they're, like lean, they're leaning on a, on a, on a cane or they, you know, they've got the, you know, the sleeve of a long garment going down, but they're levitating. What do you automatically do? You automatically jump to a natural solution, don't you? You don't walk around the street. You come around the corner and there's the joker levitating and you think, whoa, look at that. Look, he's flying. He's levitating. Look, nothing underneath. There's no strings. Amazing. Quick, get the, we've got to film this. This has got to go on. You, look, what do you normally do? Right, what's the trick? Where's the trick? Oh, it's, oh, he's got some sort of support thing in his arm. Or, you know, he's, the, oh, it's not really, it's like a metal thing in his cloak. There's a base underneath. Seen it before. Move your hands, mate. Go on, and that one, and that one. Oh, you can't, can you? Because you know he's falling down. That's what we normally do, isn't it? We normally look at something, even something weird, and think, yeah, I know what's going on here. But there is an explanation here. There's a, there's a reason for this. We're not gullible. We're quite skeptical in a good way. You know, we, we, don't, we don't fall over ourselves thinking this is amazing and, and phenomenal. In the same way that Mary didn't, that the disciples didn't. 
maybe a tougher one is sometimes some people say they claim to be miraculously healed. Whether from a faith healer or a Christian who's prayed for them or something, or some alternative therapy. And again, what's your natural reaction? Most people here, your natural reaction is probably, mm, really? You know, was it coincidence? Was it a, you know, a little bit of combo of this and that? Was, there, was it going to get better anyway? We, we're just not skeptical. We're just skeptical. We don't, we're not gullible. We don't jump immediately to, 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 the, to the extreme supernatural example. We go for natural explanations. The question I want to make sure we think about carefully, though, is what do we do when the natural explanations run out and fail to explain? What do we do when, like Mary and the disciples, we've tried every single plausible example of, well, who's taken them? Where could he be? And who's, how can he, I don't have any more answers. What do we do when the natural runs out? I think that's when we gradually, perhaps reluctantly, maybe skeptically, have to engage with other answers. I think maybe there is something more than what we understand. Do we just rule out uh, supernatural explanations? Some of you might think, no, no, we don't go there for supernatural. It's unscientific. There's, al- there's always a natural explanation. We just don't see it carefully enough. Just like the, just like the guy kind of levitating, cross-legged, but with a little cheeky support thing. Now, there's always a reason. Most of the time, there is. And we keep looking for it, and that's right. But what do we do when we really can't find any explanation other than the supernatural? Do we say supernatural can't happen? No, that just doesn't happen? Well, if we do scientifically, that's very foolish. Because what we're like then is we're, like a, we're, we're, like, we're, we're into a circular argument. We're, we're, we're into this, this circular reasoning that doesn't go anywhere. We're like a scientist who throws away his experimental data because it doesn't fit the model. And I'll do the experiment again. I get the same data. Well, I'm going to throw that data. That data can't be right because it doesn't fit the model. I'm going to do it again. Same data. I'm going to throw the data away because it doesn't fit the model. What's the other thing we should do? We should say perhaps the model's wrong. So rather than saying, oh, no, no, Jesus risen from the dead. No, there's no natural explanation, but it can't be supernatural because supernatural things don't happen. Maybe we need to think, maybe, maybe something else did happen. Let me ask you a question. You know, if God exists, let's assume for the minute that God exists, okay? Whether you think that's true or not, just go with it for a minute. If God exists... Is it possible that miraculous supernatural things happen? I think it is. Whether or not you think God really exists or not. If God exists and he's real, I think supernatural miraculous things could happen. So if we say uh, supernatural miraculous things like the resurrection of Jesus, that can't happen. Why can't it happen? Well, there's, there's no God. There's no supernatural world. Okay. But what if there was? What if the resurrection of Jesus was evidence for there being a God who can do supernatural events in the world. And you say, no, 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 he can't risen from the dead because supernatural things don't happen. What have you done? You've thrown away the experimental data and you've said, let's keep the model. You've started from the assumption there's no God, there's no evidence for God, therefore that's proved my hypothesis that there's no God, but you've thrown the evidence away, the resurrection of Jesus. If God exists, just go for an if. If God exists it is conceivable that he raised Jesus from the dead. And the tough question we've got to ask is, if that didn't happen, how else do we explain the resurrection of Jesus? 
How else do you explain Mary's gradual journey, reluctantly, skeptically, almost this reluctant journey to faith? How do you explain the disciples' gradual, reluctant, skeptical journey to faith? How do you explain the journey to faith that many of the people in this room have been on, gradually, reluctantly, skeptically or many times, saying, look, the more I look, the closer I investigate, the more evidence I see, this is plausible. This has got something to it. This has got an explanatory power both about what happened then and what goes on in my own life. How do you explain the apparent resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection appearances, the missing body? How do you explain the birth of Christianity where one crucified tradesman started a faith that spread throughout the whole world based on the historical belief, the historical event that he rose from the dead in a culture where nobody believed that people were raised from the dead in that way. Nobody. They weren't foolish. They weren't more gullible. Don't kid yourself. Oh, back then everyone was stupid. Someone fell out. Oh, I've fallen over. Oh, he's dead. Oh, he's risen from the dead. He's got up again. Hey! Let's not, let's not have a kind of chronological arrogance that says anyone before us was thicker than us. In their culture, all the Jewish people knew, you don't rise from the dead. There's only one time when that's going to happen. They believed and it was going to be the end of time when God raised everyone from the dead to judge them all. If you said to a Jew, Jesus is risen from the dead, they'd say, well, it's too soon. If you were a non-Jew, a Greek part of the Greek culture, you believed that when someone died, the soul was freed from the prison of the body to enjoy finally a life of freedom rather than imprisonment in the body. If you said to them, someone's uh, risen from the dead, they've come back, they've come back to life. You say, what, gone back to prison? That's like Mandela booking the ticket back to Robin Island. It doesn't make any sense. Nobody in that culture believed that these things happened. And yet, it spread like wildfire, the belief that this Jewish prophet had risen from the dead and was alive today. That's the Christian message. That's what Easter's all about. Maybe we say, well, we can never, we can never know. It's just a spiritual, religious thing. No. Christianity wasn't born out of someone's ideas or a belief or a philosophy or an experience that someone wanted to communicate to their followers. It was based around the claim that he was dead and now he's really alive. I can't investigate someone's spiritual experience. I can't investigate someone's claims or beliefs or ideals. I can investigate, did someone rise from the dead or not? I can look at the historical evidence, both within the New Testament and outside the New Testament, and say, what does the evidence point to? Why does it matter, though? Why does it matter? Just to, just to kind of move it on from, from where is he? Why does it matter? The clue is in this little phrase that Jesus used at the end of this passage. He says this to Mary. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It's a clue to what was going on here. Jesus Jesus is saying, because of my death and resurrection, we relate to God in a totally different way. Why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Because we can reconnect with God. Jesus is saying, you, because I've died and risen from the dead, you can relate to God in the way that I do. See, there's a huge contrast between the way that we relate to God. And by we, I mean us people alive today. I mean us people 2,000 years ago, Mary, the disciples, anyone else who was around at the time. People in general. There's a huge contrast between the way we relate to God and the way Jesus does. We, we kind of relate to God, you know, it's kind of, there's a vagueness to it, I think, for most people. If you ask most people in this country, who would say they believe in God and how do you relate to God? It's kind of vague, it's slightly impersonal. It's, it's maybe a kind of abstract, philosophical, conceptual. You know, we can talk, does God exist? And if he does, would he do this? And what would he be like? 
it's, I, think the, I think it's like an unknown, distant relative, isn't it? It's like your great, great Uncle Bernie. That, you know, everyone talks about it. You know, you get together. Oh, do you remember when great old uncle, great great uncle Bernie used to used to do this and used to have this saying? And you don't know what great great uncle Bernie looks like, and you don't really know what he's like. You heard a few funny stories about what he did during the war, and and, and, and a few business ventures that failed, or maybe it, maybe it's your second second cousin, three times removed on your mother's side, that, that you've heard that she lives over here and has some sort of eccentricity involving cheese or something like that, and you just these people are vague, they're distant, they're kind of concepts, abstract. That's kind of how we can think about God. But Jesus, when he arrived, Jesus seemed to relate to God in a totally different way. Jesus went around calling God my father. I relate to him as a father. To Jesus, God seemed to be real, personal, close, relational. Not conceptual, abstract, or removed, vague. Jesus, Jesus amazed his disciples by talking about this intimate father-son relationship he had with God. They were like, wow, we've never heard anything like this. Jesus scandalized the religious authorities by relating to God in this way. They were like, how dare you relate to God on such familiar terms? But Jesus' basis for it was that I've always been God's son. Jesus claimed not only to be a man who had a really good connection with God, Jesus claimed to be the eternal son of God. He claimed that in eternity past, before he was even born as a human. He was with God. He was part of God. He was in the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This eternally loving relationship within God. And Jesus claimed, that's how I relate to God the Father. And the message of Easter is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, you are invited into the Trinity. The message of Easter is you can relate to God in the same way as Jesus. The message of Easter is he's no longer your great, distant, great, great Uncle Bernie. He's your father. Jesus said to Mary, I'm going to my father and your father. My God and your God. He's saying you can relate to God in the same way that I do. That's mind-blowing. That's phenomenal. No longer distant, no longer imp- I don't have to pray using set prayers. Well, what kind of prayers does he like? What shall I say? What shall I do? He can be your father through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can come as close to God as it's possible for anybody who wasn't right there in the original three in one to be. That's astounding. That's the message of Easter. The message of Easter is you can reconnect with God forever. Jesus said, I'm ascending to my God and your God, my Father, your Father. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not dying again. This, you see, Jesus' resurrection was not a resuscitation. A, a resuscitation is, let's not, for sensitivity's sake, let's not mime it, but I've died, some kind of medical procedure, and I'm back. You know, my heart stopped beating, the blood flow was out. Casualty, bang, he's back, resuscitated. I was, I was a person alive, I died, but then they brought me back. But I'm going to carry on, and what's going to happen? I'm still going to die again. That's a resuscitation. That's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus, if his, Jesus didn't go into the tomb, resuscitation, boom, and back out through, back out of the tomb, because at some point he's going to die and go back in again. Jesus died, went into the tomb of death, and far from being resuscitated, he exploded through the other side of death. He tore a jagged, gaping hole in death itself 
by his death and his resurrection from the dead so that people like you and me, if we connect with God and we get to know God as our Father in the way that Jesus did, when we die, we don't need to think, oh, I hope someone's going to resuscitate me. We know someone's going to resurrect me. We know when we die, if we put our faith in Jesus and connect with God, our relationship with God will go on forever and ever, just as Jesus is will. He said he's ascending to be with God the Father in a, in a forever reconnected relationship with him, which is what is open to you and I. That's the message of Easter. The message of Easter is the door is wide open because Jesus died and rose from the dead. The door is open. You can look through. You can step through. You can engage in this new creation, Easter life, that goes on forever and ever and ever. You can, you can go on this gradual, sometimes speedy, but gradual often journey to faith. I just want to point two things out. One, if you're a real Christian here, that's true of you. Do you get it? That's true of you. You relate to God like Jesus does. He's ascended to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And it'll go on forever because he's broken through death forever. If you're not a Christian, if you're investigating, if you're skeptical, if you're reluctant, if you're dubious, I want to invite you, take a peek at least through the door. Take a few steps on the gradual kind of road that might lead to belief you don't have to determine whether you're going to get there or not just take a few steps just investigate why not because if this is true this is the most important thing there is in the world everything's different if it's not true and if you take a few steps down the path peek through the door and discover it's not true you know you can forget about it for the rest of your life But as you do that, I would challenge you to be like Mary and the disciples and many of the people here, that rather than let their view of the world dictate what evidence they allow, I would say let the evidence, which I believe points strongly to the resurrection of Jesus, let that shape your view of the world. And you may just find that having peeked through the door and taken a few steps down the path, you suddenly find yourself with Mary saying, I've seen the Lord. He's risen from the dead. Amen. Can we have the band up, please? I'm just going to pray for you. Uh, Before I do, I just want to recommend this one book. Uh, We've got a few of these at the back. If you're visiting and you think, I'm a little bit more interested than I was earlier, you're very welcome to take one of these. They're free. It's just a little, gives you a few bits of the evidence that can start you investigating uh, the message of Easter. Also, another really great way of doing it is to come along every Sunday morning. We, uh, we're not a church that is geared up for people who believe. We're a church that has got lots of people coming along as a really good way of finding out more and investigating more. And you're really, really welcome to join us at any time on that uh, part of your search as well. Or to grab Al or myself or anybody else you know here and we can have a chat with you as well. But we would love you to explore. But I'm just going to pray for all of us if that's okay. And then the band are going to play. Father God, I want to thank you that you love us. Even though you were distant to us, some sort of vague relation, I thank you that in Jesus you came close. And I thank you that in his death and resurrection, you've opened the door for people like me to know you. And I want to pray for those of us who have made that journey to faith here, you would strengthen and encourage and delight us in what you've done. And for those of us who are either on the journey or have not even begun, I want to pray, Jesus, that you would help them as they may be reluctantly, dubiously, gradually take a few steps along the path to find you. Amen. Amen.